want you to think back for a moment. Um, think back when uh, you were growing up or uh, think back to the moment when you realized that your parent or your mother or your father uh, was a real human being and not just a food and money factory. Can you remember those days? Can you remember when you figured out, oh, you're a person with desires and wants and dreams and hopes and those types of things. Can you, can you think back and remember those? I'll tell you when it happened for me with my dad. It was about six months ago. No. <laughs> but we were talking. My dad has always kind of been a steel trap of a person. He's always been a real quiet guy. I know next to nothing about his history. I know next to nothing about how, I mean, his growing up and his life in the military, all these different things. Not long when um, we were visiting, um, or it, it, he came up and uh, they, they came, my, my dad and my niece, they came up from Colorado Springs. They wanted to take a train from Colorado Springs to Portland. And so they looked at the train prices and routes and all these things. And unfortunately, the train uh, went down through San Diego and would have to come up through California and take like three days longer than they wanted. And so they said, okay, that's not an option. So they said, okay, we'll, we'll just take the Greyhound. We'll take the bus across the country. I don't know if any of you have taken the bus across the country in a while, but it's a little rough. <laughs> and I remember thinking to my dad, why didn't you just fly? What, what's your story? Why, what's your story with flying? Is, is everything okay? Do you like to fly? Have you ever flown? And I remember like not long ago, we were having this conversation and uh, he was talking with Joanna, my wife, and uh, he like opened up his wallet and he pulled out a uh, pilot's license. A pilot's license? My dad flies planes and I never knew about it. I've never seen him on a plane. I've never seen him fly a plane before. And he's just carrying around this 40-year-old pilot's license. I assume it's no good anymore. But it was one of those moments where, do I know anything about you? Are you a real human being, right? And we start to realize, okay, you are a person. And I'm trying to get to know my dad more. I'm trying to know him as a person more and more because I don't need him for food. I don't need him for money. Well, I almost don't need him for money. And <laughs> uh, but I don't need him in those ways. I want to know him as a person. And so trying to make that shift from being just a parent to knowing him as a person, to have a relationship with him. When we're reading the scriptures here, we're reading uh, a letter to the Philippians. We're reading somebody else's mail. We're reading a personal correspondence between Paul and a group of people that he loves. We often call the books of the Bible books, as if they're just um, abstract thoughts written out, instructions. We think of it as instructions for God's will in our lives now, passed down through the church. We think of it as a holy book, but this is a letter between individuals. We are taking a peek at somebody's relationship. We're taking a peek at how Paul related with the group of people whom he loved. So that's what we've been doing this whole time. We've got to kind of take the shift away from just being a book to a letter between people who love each other. It starts with this. So we kind of do a recap. The first thing in Paul's letter is a prayer of thanksgiving and a call to be, um, let's see, where is that? It's, the opening prayer is to be joyful in the midst of suffering. Paul is in prison, but it's okay. It's okay, because even though he's in prison, he's free. 
even though the world is oppressing him, he knows who this world belongs to. So the suffering that he's going through is just a misunderstanding. He is free. Then he moves into this discussion about being unified and giving up on selfishness. Be unified. The gospel cannot be stopped. There are some preachers that are getting bigger crowds. There are some preachers that are getting more money. And we're asking, or the Philippians are asking, who's better? And should we follow these people? Paul says, look, if the gospel is being preached, I'm for it. Don't worry about these people that are trying to go after more money. But you yourselves, be unified with one another. Do everything without grumbling. Do everything without complaining. Love one another and don't be selfish. He moves right into the Christ hymn, which is have the same mind as Christ. Christ had everything and laid it all aside for our sake. Have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. And now that's not enough. It's not enough to just think like Christ, but having the mind of Christ, go out and work your faith. Live out, work your faith. You have to do something about it. At this point in the letter, Paul tells um, uh, the Philippians that he's going to be sending some people. He's going to be sending Timothy, and he's going to be sending uh, Epaphroditus. Is that the Epaphroditus? I did it right. Whew. Epaphroditus probably didn't do a lot of great things because we don't name our children Epaphroditus, but <laughs> we know that these two people are examples of people who have the mind of Christ who live out their faith. And the Philippians need examples of faith because in the absence of Paul, there have come in some of these other leaders that have started to mess things up a little bit. Who are these other leaders? Early on in Christianity, there were some questions about who was going to be in and who was going to be out in the faith. Um, it was... It, it, the Christian faith started in the Jewish people. Jesus Christ said that I've not come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill the law. Um, the early Christians didn't see Jesus as a deviation from the God of Israel, but a fulfillment of all the hopes of Israel. And so the Christian movement started as a Jewish movement. And Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, this new reality where justice and peace will reign, a new reality where the number one rule is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We are starting a new reality. He called it the kingdom of God. And as other people started to hear about this, non-Jewish people started to hear about this, they said, well, can I get involved in that? That sounds good. That sounds good. I, I would rather be in the kingdom of God than in the empire of Caesar. I would rather live in that world where justice reigns, peace reigns, where love reigns. Can I be part of that world? And the Jewish Christians said, sure, yeah. All you have to do is be Jewish first. And the Greek Christians, Greek uh, people, that they're thinking, okay, I want to be Christian. How, what do I have to do? And they're like, well, you can't eat pork. And they're like, oh, man. Well, okay, you know, for the sake of Christ and for the sake of being in this kingdom and the new world, yeah, I'll give up bacon, no problem. I will do it. It's a huge sacrifice, but I will do it. Anything else? Yes, you have to be circumcised. What? <laughs> These adult men thinking to themselves, I got to be circumcised to be part of this kingdom? That doesn't seem quite right. I love your message. I love 
Jesus, I love the God that Jesus reveals. Do I really have to follow all these rules? Paul says to these people, hold on, let me go check. And so he goes back to the apostles. He goes back to the leaders of the church. He says, look, everybody, is this kingdom not for everyone? Is God's grace and the good news of Jesus not for all people? Well, the Old Testament laws, they are being a stumbling block for the world. They're stopping people from coming in. What can we do? Can we say that circumcision is a symbol of our devotion to God? Can we be circumcised in heart whether or not we are circumcised in body? And Paul makes this great appeal to the apostles, and they say, you know what? Yeah, you're right. You're right. The law tells us what is good, but the law shouldn't stop people from coming to Christ. So, yes, go tell the Gentiles, go tell the world that they don't have to follow the Old Testament laws. They don't have to become Jewish first before they become Christian. Go tell them that they are free. But just one thing, um, tell them that they still can't eat meat sacrificed to idols. We're still not going to participate in that. And tell them that, Paul. Paul says, no problem. So Paul goes back to his churches. He says, great news, everybody. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. You are no longer bound to the law. You're no longer bound to the Jewish law. You don't have to do anything. Here's the letter from the apostles. They say, you are set free. You don't have to be circumcised. Just, uh, just don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. And I'm telling you, sometimes that's okay too. Don't worry about it, right? And Paul tells the Philippians, you are free. But in the absence of Paul, in the absence of Paul, other Christian leaders have come in, and they've said to the Philippians, actually, actually, this kingdom of God coming through Jesus Christ, it is a kingdom of righteousness. It is a kingdom where all things are right. And so, if you are going to participate in this kingdom of righteousness, of course, you must follow the law. Of course you must be uh, sacrificed. Of course you must be circumcised. Of course you follow everything that Moses commanded us. After all, Jesus said, I've not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law. So be righteous. And to this, the Philippians are questioning, what do we do, Paul? What do we do? So first we got to talk a little bit about righteousness. What is righteousness? Righteousness is a balancing of the scales. Righteousness is a balancing of the scales. It is establishing fairness. It is establishing justice. Being righteous doesn't mean you're perfect, doesn't mean you're holy, doesn't mean you're doing everything right. Being righteous means the scales are balanced. The scales are balanced. Things are fair. Every human society has been after righteousness. Every human society has been after fairness. What is right? How do we balance the scales? If you knock out my tooth, how many teeth do I get to knock out of your face, right? These are the questions of human society. We want to balance the scales. Every culture has to decide if there is an accident, if there is an at fault, what does it take to make it right? What does it take to balance the scales, right? So Judaism and the law of Moses is no difference, different. Here's a law that is established to help the people balance the scales when things go out of whack. If your ox gets out of your pen and kills your neighbor's servant, we got a law for that, right? 
<laughs> if uh, your servant gets out and, and sleeps with your, uh, your daughter, we got a law for that. If a neighbor comes over and knocks out one of your teeth, you get to knock out one of their teeth. We have a law for that. The law of Moses balances the scales to make sure fairness and justice is set. Now, that's a difficult thing to do. And if we went through and looked through the Old Testament law, we might say to ourselves, whoo, that does not look fair. That does not look right. That does not look balanced. But that's what the Jewish people asked for. They asked for some sort of balance. They asked for something. How do we know when things are just? How do we know when things are, are fair? They said, here's the law. This is what's fair. Now, the issue is that um, these other Christian leaders that are trying to establish the law and making the Philippians do the law, they have a bad understanding of what the faith is really about. The faith is not about believing abstract thoughts. Faith is not about affirming abstract principles. Faith is not about living up to a certain law. Faith is about knowing the God who becomes personal to us, right? Faith is not about ascribing to a, a, a law, about, um, about ideas, but faith is about a relationship with God. And righteousness looks differently in a courtroom than it does in a relationship, right? Paul is saying, we're not just trying to get right in the court of law. We are trying to get right with a person. We are trying to get right with somebody that we know. Faith is about knowing God. It's not about just being right in court. And so the question for us is, how do you attain righteousness? How do you attain righteousness in a relationship? Here's, here's the answer, as far as I can tell. Righteousness uh, is only possible in a relationship through forgiveness. Righteousness in relationships only happens through forgiveness. Let me give you an example. Sorry about my microphone. <laughs> Let me give you an example. I am not good about doing the dishes ever, okay? And like for me, I, it doesn't bother me if dishes sit in the sink overnight. It just doesn't. And I know that I'm the weird one. I know that I'm the wrong one here. Um, no doubt about it. And sometimes I'll make promises. I will make promises. I will do these dishes. I will put them away. I will make those promises. And then sometimes, uh, later on, when I've not kept up those promises, uh, Joanna will tell me, hey, I had to put away your dishes again. I go, oh no, I'm sorry. Okay, there becomes an imbalance in our relationship. I've done something wrong. How do I fix this? How can I make this right? How can we establish righteousness in this relationship again? I cannot go back, take the dishes out of the dishwasher, put them in the sink, call Joanna, hey Joanna, come watch what I'm about to do. Then take the dishes out of the sink and put them back in the dishwasher and say, hey, we're all square now, right? I did it. That doesn't work. When it's already done and when it's already been taken care of, there's no going back. There's no making it right. The only way that we can be made right is if I say, I'm sorry. 
I messed up. I can't promise that I'll never do it again, but I'm sorry, I'm going to try. And the only way it's made right is through forgiveness. It's through forgiveness, right? Let me tell another story about my dad. Um, I, I may have shared this before. I was 15 years old, and uh, there was a school teacher that I didn't like, and her name was Miss Carlson, and she didn't like me either. And I remember um, I was not doing very well in her class, and there was this big uh, project that was going to be worth like half our grade, and we were supposed to show up for class ready, and when she called on you, you had to present, and, if you, uh, and you didn't know when you were going to present. It was either going to be Wednesday or Thursday. And so I come on Wednesday, I'm ready to go. She calls my name, and I look at, through my backpack, and I didn't have my visual aid. And you always need a visual aid for presentations. And so I said, oh no, Miss um, Carlson, I don't have my visual aid, but um, do you want me to go anyways? And she said, you've made your choice. And I was like, what? Okay. And so I didn't go, and then I never went. And then I didn't get to do my project. And so... Um, when midterms came out, I had an F in this class, and it was the worst grade I've ever had. And um, when my dad saw it, he said, you know, Richard, what are we going to do about this? And I said, Dad, you don't understand. Mrs. Carlson hates boys. She, <laughs> she hates me. She hates everything I do. And uh, I don't know why she's so biased and wrong. And my dad said, well, okay, let's go down and talk to Miss Carlson. Oh, boy. And so we go down, and we have this conference with Mrs. Carlson, the counselor, and myself, and my dad. And when we start into this meeting, my dad just lays into Mrs. Carlson, just tells her what an awful teacher she is, tells her how wrong it is for her to discriminate against boys, how to favor girls, and that he starts defending how smart I am, he starts defending how good of a person I am, how good of a child I am, and I'm freaking out. Because after my dad goes on his tirade, she opens up the grade book, she turns it around and shows my dad and says, here's all the assignments that your son hasn't done this semester. Here's everything that he's not turning in. My dad gets quiet. He says, okay, I'm sorry about that. He apologizes. And we end that meeting, and my dad and I get in the car to drive home. And it is silent in that car. <laughs> and I am scared out of my mind. I'm thinking, what am I going to do to make this right? What kind of punishment am I going to get? Punishment is one of those things that we try to balance the scales with, right? How am I going to, what, what's going to happen? And we get home, and before we go into the house, before we get out of the car, my dad just says to me quietly, Richard, don't make me do that again. And that was it. And in that moment, I knew whew, my dad would do that for me again. If there was some sort of injustice happening to me, my dad would go to bat for me again, right? And in that moment, I knew that he forgives me. And in that moment, I changed my behavior, right? Think about that. There was no grounding that could have made that relationship right. There was no amount that my dad could do to me to balance the scales, to get it right. But he forgave me. And I think about that moment. And that moment changed me. And it made it right between us. 
Our faith is a relationship with God. It is not a contract with a judge about doing right and doing wrong. It is a relationship that we have with God. And when we do wrong, the only way to balance the scales again is through forgiveness. We can't go back and undo what we've done, right? But here's the only thing. We don't even know when we've screwed up. We don't even know how bad we screwed up. We don't even have the heart to ask for forgiveness. And God sees us making the world a bigger mess, and he says, you know what? I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to do it for you. And so through Christ, God asks for forgiveness. Jesus comes to us, becomes human for us. He asks for forgiveness for us. He submits to everything we go through. And on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus, for us, asks for forgiveness on our behalf. And through the act of Jesus, God forgives us. God does both the asking and the forgiving on our behalf. We have done nothing to make our relationship right with God. He has done all of it for us. Jesus did not get your permission before dying for you. Jesus did not get your permission before asking for forgiveness. Jesus just forgives you. You are already forgiven, not through anything you've done, but through the work that he has done. Your relationship with God has been made right. You have already been saved. You've already been saved. So then what is there left for us? What is there left for us? Then for us, salvation, experiencing salvation is the moment when we accept that we are accepted. One of my favorite theologians, Paul Tillich, says it this way, the, uh, salvation is accepting that you are accepted. We are known and accepted in Christ, and so knowing salvation is accepting that you are accepted. You've already been saved through Christ's work, not through anything else you've done. And this is why Paul says, look, I consider everything I've ever done. I consider all these accolades, all the work that I've done to try to be righteous according to the law. I consider all of that sewer trash compared to knowing Christ. Because the righteousness I have has nothing to do with anything I've ever done. The righteousness I have, I only have through forgiveness. And I didn't even ask for forgiveness, but Christ asked for it on my behalf, and God grants it for me. There's nothing I've done. So my only posture is gratitude. My only response is joy and thanksgiving. It's the only reason why I do anything, because I have already been made right through the love of Christ. I have been accepted. Let me end with a couple of action steps. The first one is to accept that you are accepted. I don't, I begin a relationship with Christ. Faith is not just saying yes to these different boxes, yes to this or that or that. Faith is entering into a relationship with the God of the universe, a relationship that has been made right through forgiveness you are forgiven of everything, and you can be in that relationship and know Christ today. 
So when we come forward for communion, when you receive communion, that could be an act. Let that be an act of thanksgiving, an act of entering into that relationship with God, saying, God, I am here. I am yours. You are mine. Number two, um, maybe because it's a relationship, uh, because faith is a relationship, maybe we just need to review some, uh, renew some of our vows, right? Every relationship has vows. Every relationship has some promises, some, some covenants. In the United Methodist Church, we have this prayer. We call it the Wesley Covenant Prayer, and it's a fantastic prayer that is a vow to God, and it's kind of a way that I use to renew my vows. I think we'll have the words up here, um, and and I'll just read them for us, but they go like this. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee, uh, by thee, or laid aside by thee. Exalted for thee, or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine, and I am thine. So be it. And may the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Those are some pretty good vows. Those are some pretty good promises. We have them in, in little bookmark forms. They're on the information table in the hub. You could pick those up and, and, um, and take that with you if you need to renew some vows, to renew that relationship. And then the last thing, of course, throughout this entire series, um, I'm asking people to read the book of Philippians, or the letter to the Philippians. I, I need to keep saying letter. We're looking at a relationship between Paul and a church that he formed, between Paul and a people that he loves. As we read that letter, as we let those words sink into us, they're going to find some root in our hearts. And we'll be surprised on those days when something is going on and a word comes up from Philippians. A word comes up, says, I got a righteousness that is not my own, but comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And when we need those words, they will be with us. Paul is not after any sort of righteousness, by a court system or a law, but we are after a righteousness that makes, that balances the scales in the relationship that we have with God. The good news is the scales have already been balanced. You have been made right, not through any work you've done, but through the work of Christ. And that's what we celebrate. You are accepted. Accept that you are accepted.